And uh, again, if you're visiting, I want to say a welcome to you, and uh, thanks for joining us on this last Sunday of 2009. And this year, we have been studying through the Gospel of John. This is a very well-known book of the New Testament, and we took a break during, uh, during Advent to look at texts related to the promise of and then the coming of the Messiah and, and what that meant. And uh, I'm going to be out the next couple of Sundays. Uh, don't play hooky, please, don't play hooky. But, um, but I wanted to take a look just here at the year's end at a psalm that has a lot to do with time and days. You'll see the word days in this psalm a lot. Uh, it's a very interesting Old Testament passage because most of the psalms in the Old Testament are by, are by whom? They're by David. Yeah, King David wrote really the, the majority of the psalms that we have, but this one is unique. It is written by Moses. This is a very, very ancient text. Now, something to think about um, this year, you know, we're getting in magazines and news things, you know, the, the uh, looking back at 2009 or looking back at, you know, the, uh, you know, the years that start with zero. It's kind of a shame, by the way. I was talking with a friend about this, that we didn't cash in on the alt-9 thing like people used to say in the old days, like, you know, back in alt-6. I feel like I never did that, and, uh, you know, it's only like three days left, so we blew that. But... Uh, but, you know, looking back on the year, looking back on the last decade, and it was interesting in the news to see, even in just very, you know, non-churchy sources or TV news, that there were celebrations and acknowledgement this year of uh, this being the 500th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin. And uh, this, he was a major figure in the Protestant Reformation, had a massive impact, really, on the world. And like him or hate him, he is a, a large figure in, in world history. And one of the things that's interesting about him is that a lot of what he wrote is still in print. I mean, not many people stay in print for half a millennium. And one of his most famous works is something called The Institutes. It's the Institutes of the Christian Religion, and it's on my shelf in my office. And if you open it up to the very beginning, after his intro, the very first thing he says, and this is a deep, substantive, really incredible two-volume work, but the first thing he says is this, if you're ever going to be wise, there's two kinds of knowledge that you have to have. You have to have knowledge of God, and you have to have knowledge of self. And where the first one stops and the other one starts, it's almost impossible to say. And that is an amazing beginning. He says, if you're ever going to be a wise person, here's what you're going to have to grapple with and think through. Who is God? But also, who am I? And those are so interrelated, it's hard to know where one stops and the other starts. And as you're thinking about, all right, we're, we're, we're closing the books on 2009, we're about to start 2010, what do I need? And probably because we're Americans and because of what our culture is like now, a, a lot of us would say, uh, I need to get more organized. You know, well, one, uh, one columnist in the New York Times said that the new American virtues are control and efficiency. And that rings true. 
So then, okay, if we're super efficient next year and super organized, then what? I mean, then who are you? Then what are you going to do with 2010? And, as we, you know, this is a threshold. And as we come to this threshold, I would ask you to think about someone else thousands of years ago who came to a threshold. An Old Testament king. He's David's son, Solomon. He's a young man. And he, God is making him David's successor. He's the new king of Israel. And God comes to him and says... What do you need? What do you want? Just sky's the limit. You think about all the things he could have asked for. God, give Israel the most incredibly powerful military so that we will never fear any enemy. Not what he asks for. Uh, Lord, give us so much wealth that no one can threaten us, that we will not be frightened of famine. It's not what he asked for, although God did give that. But Solomon, as a young man, said, I'm young and I don't know what I'm doing. What I actually need is wisdom. And it says that God really loved that answer and gave him more than anyone before that had ever had. And I suspect that things happened to you in 2009 that made you feel like, you know, I should know how to do life better and I don't know what to do about this. I mean, this relationship has taken me to the end of my rope. This friend, this enemy, this supervisor, I I just, I don't know what, I don't know the next step to take. Uh, I never thought financially I'd be where I am right now. I don't know what's wise. I mean, I don't want to just think about how to get to Wednesday. I want to think about how to get to 2020 if I get to live that long. What does that mean? And what I would really commend to you on the basis of God's Word as an ancient thing that it's good to want at a threshold, it's wisdom. And let me tell you this. Moses, do not think Charlton Heston, you know, with like base. You know what I'm saying? Like where, I mean, like his nose is so powdered that in the wilderness, you know, he doesn't even shine at all. I mean, think a man who is a realist. I mean, he has seen wealth, and he has lived outside, and he has seen people die up close and personal, and he's a realist. And one day he sat down, uh, very likely in the latter part of his life, and he wrote this. Psalm 90. Lord, You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away. As with the flood, they are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end 
like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, Establish the work of our hands. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. For we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Again, we're at a threshold. There's no biblical, uh, bi- biblical, biblical uh, requirement to celebrate really any day but the Sabbath. There's no command to celebrate Christmas or Easter or uh, Saturday or uh, New Year's. But you know, we need we need rhythms of life. We need we need to mark the passing of time. We mark the the passing of this year and the beginning of the next. And so the question that we're asking is, if we're going to approach 2010 with a really great thing to have and something that we're really going to need, wisdom, how do you get it? And so I want to use Psalm 90 to get at that question with somebody who lived through some very hard things and so a lot of years, Moses, how God used him to show us some things about getting a heart of wisdom. Now, where do you start? You start, actually, and Calvin echoed this, you start with God. You start with God as he actually is. Now, what's the first thing that Moses says about God? And by the way, his knowledge of God was not an abstraction. It says in the Scriptures, this is, very, this is almost unheard of, that he used to talk to God face-to-face, like friends talk. It physically affected his appearance. He got so close. And what does he say about this God that he knew? First thing he says is this. He's immortal. We're mortal. He is immortal. Now listen to the language. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. Now, here's the thing. When, if you really read hardly any of the Bible, you get these words like everlasting and forever and eternal so that it sort of loses its, 
it's punch. You don't feel it or hear it anymore. The, the word eternal really should unnerve us if we think about it, because we will have eternal existences ourselves. And everything we've known up till now ended at some point. But think about it this way. You know, the numbers billions and trillions are getting thrown around so much right now in the news that it's hard to feel it. You know, I don't know if you remember the, the congressman from Illinois that years ago said, you know, when you're talking about money, a billion here, a billion there, pretty soon you're talking about real money. Well, now it's trillions. And I heard somebody make this comparison. A, a billion seconds ago would be somewhere in the middle of 1978. So you're about halfway through the Carter administration a billion seconds ago. A trillion seconds ago is almost 30,000 B.C. And that's the difference. And, and what Moses is saying is that pick whatever increment of time you want. We don't know how time operated before time. We don't know how time's going to operate. Beyond, I, I don't know. But if it all went by time, pick trillions of whatever increments you want. Seconds, years. How about a trillion millennia? And if you go backward or, or you go forward, Lord, you never change. That a trillion, trillion eons from now, you are a spirit, eternal, infinite, unchangeable in your being and wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness and truth. You never have changed and you never can. Now, if you just stop there, all you really have here is theism. Actually, do you remember in school learning about deism? Not theism, deism. Deism was big in colonial America. It was big with some of our nation's forefathers. And it basically said this. Yes, God is big. He created everything, all this power. But essentially what he did was he made the universe like the clock. He wound up the clock. He set the clock up on the mantle. And he is not hands-on involved. And that is not Psalm 90. Because Moses says, all right, he's immortal, but he's very personally involved. Now, the unthinking way to hear that is, oh, he's personally involved. Great. I want a God who's personally involved. Uh, think about that. Uh, he, here's what one writer said named Rebecca Pippert. And she was, she was speaking to, what do you do with the response when you're reading in the Bible and you see something about God being angry? And you don't want God to be angry. You want God to be nice. What do you do with that? Because nobody wants a tyrannical God. And she said this, Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. I mean, have you ever had a relative or a friend who just would just bang their head against a wall? And you have to watch and you're thinking, I love you so much I'm about to kill you. You're hurting someone I love and the someone I love is you. God is the ultimate demonstration. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but it's His settled opposition to the cancer 
which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Now, did you hear, as Moses writes this psalm, how much he talks about God's anger? Look in verse 7. It says, We're brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we're dismayed. Verse 9, All our days pass away under your wrath. Verse 11, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Now, let's stop there and say, all right, we're kind of going back and forth between who is God, who am I? God's immortal, great, but He's personally involved. And a lot of times the way that manifests itself is a real anger over what man has done in general and what I've done in particular. Now, what do I do with that knowledge? Now, a couple of things before we go any further about being wise. Number one, it's to realize that my life will be limited. I won't live forever. Uh, My wife and I met with a financial planner last week to discuss our mass, uh, massive wealth and, and assets and, and holdings and tons of mutual funds and stuff. But, but uh, anyway, we were sitting down. It was a second visit we'd had with this person. And the funny thing is that a, uh, a financial planner will get you, not metaphorically, but literally, to try to number your days. For instance, this guy was talking to us and he said, Okay, Brian, how long do you think you'll live? Now, there's, how do you answer that question? Because you don't want to sell yourself short and go, out of 48 tops. <laughs> but you don't want to say 105. And he said, okay, let's use the number 90 because in your demographic and the way life expectancies are going, you might live to be 90. He said, all right, that has you dying in 2057. I'd never heard that sentence before. <laughs> you know, it was kind of the... All right, well, thanks for the encouragement boost. Uh, How much do we owe you? But I'm not going to live forever. Look look in verses 5 and 6. It says you, meaning God, you sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes, and it's renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Grass can, especially in the south, it can look bright green in the morning, and I mean, you really get to August, by the end of the day, different story. And, and this manifests itself in body and soul. Look, look in verse, uh, look in, first off, in body, verse 3. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And that is such an interesting little snippet. Because, again, this is Moses writing this who also wrote Genesis. And it's as if he's thinking about the first few chapters of Genesis. Because you could translate, return, O children of man, to dust. You could translate that, return, O children of Adam. And what Moses is saying is that when our bodies decompose one day, that is not something that just happens. Our bodies don't have the power innately to decompose. It's God who actively hands-on, returns us to dust. But it touches on my soul, too. Look in verse uh, verse 9. Excuse me, verse 8. It says that you've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. 
You know, part of wisdom is to say, I am not going to live forever. And even as I'm living my finite life, I'm not what I ought to be. And, and that relates to the next point, and that is to come to grips with life will be hard. I mean, one of the most pernicious things about the, whether it be in book or on TV or DVDs or on the internet or whatever, one of the most pernicious things about the believe in God and you'll have tons of stuff message, you know, health and wealth, as it's been called, is not just how those kind of ministries can be used for the messenger to become wealthy, but how it is such a distortion of what the Bible overtly says. Because God is the one who can enable you to make wealth. Our clothes and shelter and money and bank accounts, I mean, that, that is by God's own hand. But life is hard. Life is hard. It's a fallen world. And we're living in it in fallen bodies and fallen souls, which means even if you've got a great life, sometimes things happen that break your heart or make you physically hurt or spiritually groan or emotionally agonize. I mean, listen to the language. Listen to the language of verse 10. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet, their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. And then th- those words really grab me right now in a particular way. My father is right at the cusp of turning 80. He's just a few months away, and I don't know that he's going to make it. Now, I'm watching him quite literally, fade and wither. And he has every doctor that has looked at him, and I've been in the room when this has happened, has said, I can't believe what age you are. You're very strong. You look good. You're in good health. But there it is, the fading. That's realism. Now, what do you do with the realism? And there's, there's really different tracks you can do. There's a religious response and there's an irreligious response. The religious response would be to look at that, the things we just said, that Moses said, and go, all right, well, look, then if that's the case, don't make him mad. God, figure out what bone he wants you to throw to him and throw it to him. Do your Bible reading and do your prayer and and do not cuss publicly and... uh, (laughs) Just figure out what it is that he or she or they or it wants and do that. Because again, when I say religion, that doesn't have to be uniquely Christian. That's the heart of religiosity is figure out what the deity wants and what you want from the deity and appease it. That's the religious response. The, the, The irreligious response is what? Is to say... Well, if that is what God is like, then no thanks. Because look at how hard life is. You know, my friends have had an incredibly hard year. Some of my friends got fired this year. Where was God? 
And if the Bible says that he's got all power and says that he's love, then where, there, where was God? I mean, have you looked at the news? Well, let me give you an example. This came up a lot in these reviews of the year. Um, the drug wars in Mexico have become insane. This year in uh, Juarez, if you've ever been to El Paso, Texas, you look right across the river and there's Juarez. Some of you may have been to it. This year, just in Juarez, because of these drug wars, there have been almost 2,300 murders. Can you imagine what our climate would be like if in Greenville County, just in 2009, there were 2,300 murders? How that would make you feel about a child walking outside or going to run errands? But that is their life. And the irreligious response is to go, well, look, if God is God and God lets that happen, then no thanks. Now, the problem with both those responses and the reason at the end of the day why they're unwise is that they only, if I can put it this way, they're seizing on only certain parts of this psalm and they're ignoring the rest of what Moses is saying. Because if the only message we could offer is to say, hey, you know what? God is immortal and he's angry. That would be crushing. I think that would be a good way to bring our attendance down to like one. Those things are true. But what does the rest of the psalm say? A couple of things. Look in verse 15. Just look. This is amazing. God, Moses says, you're angry. Life is hard. We feel your wrath. And then what does he say in 15? Make us glad. For as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. In other words, Moses is saying these incredibly hard things, but rather than say, Oh God, we've let you down, and you're deservedly angry, so... We'll keep a safe distance from you and just try to tolerate us and not be too angry. He draws near to God and says, Make us glad. Make us as glad as we've been sad. You're the one behind everything. You're the one with all the power. You're immortal. Would you make us as joyful as we've been brokenhearted? And as he does that, he points out two things about God that we're going to need if we're going to be wise. The first thing is this. He says in verse verse 14, Satisfy us in the morning with your... And different English translations translate this differently. But in this translation, it says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Those two English words are translating one Hebrew word. And I'm telling you, it's a great Hebrew word. Because what this word is, I'm just going to say it because it's so fun to say. It sounds so Hebrew. Chesed. Not hesed, chesed. And what it means is that God comes along and says, I'm going to love you. And if you try to shoo me away, I'm still going to love you. And even though I've got the power to break you in half, I'm going to woo you. I'm going to woo you. 
And what my love is going to do to you is going to turn your shame into glory. And I'm going to take your ugliness and I'm going to make it beautiful. And I who should punish you, I'm going to marry you. And we're going to be together forever. That's what chesed is. And Moses says, God, I don't want you just to make us glad. I want to be satisfied with that in the morning. In other words, I want to eat that. I, want, I, don't, want to just learn, I don't want to just know about your steadfast love. I want to eat it and drink it. And by the way, what do you think that table is supposed to say? It says that. I don't want to just know about it. I want to eat it and drink it. And then Moses says this, verse 17, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. Now, I don't ever want you to distrust good translations, and this is a good translation. But you know what really a better translation of that phrase is? It is not so much your favor. Like, oh, yeah, God likes me. Woo, whew, good. It is, Lord, let your beauty your loveliness be on us. I mean, do you know where the beauty of snow or El Capitan or children's skin, do you know where that beauty originates? God's beauty. He thought it all up. Those are pale reflections. And Moses says, I don't want to just see your beauty. I want it to come and wash over me and be on me. And here's the thing. If people are getting murdered in Juarez, and if I got fired this year, and if, if someone I know is, is very sick, how do I know that God is beautiful and lovely and loving? Okay, I get that he's angry. Got that. But how do I know he's beautiful? You know what's the only way to know that? Is to understand this that the immortal God took on mortality. When no one could make him do that. And that he became mortal so that people like us that get colds and stub our toes and have insomnia will be immortal. Uh, He became very sad so that we could be insanely joyful and happy. He became something very ugly, a man stripped of his clothes and bruised and cut and pierced and shamed and abandoned, is ugly. He became something ugly so that we could be something beautiful. Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her to make her what? Radiant. Beautiful. The only way in the face of death and sickness and financial hardship to be wise and know who God really is and who you really are is to look at Christ. Who it says doesn't just have God's wisdom. He is God's wisdom. In himself, God and man. So what am I supposed to do with all that? Well, I'd leave you with this. This this 
passage is not just data. It was a prayer. It's an ancient Hebrew prayer of a real guy. And so I would leave you with this exhortation. You know what wisdom in practice would look like? It would be to keep all these things in your, pack, in your pocket. God is immortal. God is rightly angry with sin. God has steadfast love for His people. He'll put His beauty on us if we will look to Him. As you keep that in your pocket, rather than to withdraw from Him, wisdom is to move toward Him and to cry out to Him. First of all, I would say this. We all need to pray as this year closes out and a new one's starting. We need to pray, God... Help me remember that I'll die. And see, if those things are in your pocket, that's not morbid. God, help me remember that I will die so that as I live, I don't react. But I live as an intentional woman, an intentional man. The second thing is this, is that if I am dissatisfied, what do I need to do? Do I need to tell everybody, I used to believe in God and He let me down and get my skepticism all over everybody? No. It is to draw close to Him and say, I'm dissatisfied. So, satisfy me. I mean, literally, give me, give me, give me. Yourself. If I'm dry, rain down. If I doubt you're there, Bowl me over. Satisfy me. Make, me. make me as glad as I'm sad. That is good to pray that. And the last thing is this. Pray for our work. Everybody here has work to do. Even if you're not employed right now, you've got work to do. And not in a worldly way of, Lord, let me make seven figures because I've only made six. But to come to him and say, Lord, with the light I have, this is what I think I'm supposed to be on my street, in my apartment, at the office, as a job seeker, as a church member, as a green billion, as a son or daughter or mom or dad. And I know that I blow it. But Lord, establish the work of our hands. Let what I'm doing right now matter, not just a year from now, but a hundred years from now. Establish the work of our hands. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask together now, as we come to your table, that you would teach us to number our days that we might get a heart of wisdom. We pray that even now you'll make us glad, make us as glad as we have felt afflicted. And we pray, not just as men and women, but as a church, that you will establish the work of our hands. Please establish the work of our hands. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.